0: You know, most great inventions did not just occur overnight. Inventors of really great products worked and worked and had trial and error and trial and error until their invention finally was settled and and done. You know, I think about that famous quote from Thomas Edison where Edison, uh, talking about a light bulb says, I didn't fail, I just learned 10,000 times how it didn't work. And even something as simple as this light bulb was actually the product of trial and error over many, many times, many, many days and years of effort. And so in our passage of scripture today, the author of Hebrews is going to talk about how Jesus has perfected the sanctification of the saints. Uh, We are growing. We are being perfected by Jesus, just like these inventors perfected their inventions So our life in Jesus, our relationship with him, he is perfecting us. He is growing us in holiness. And just as these these inventions, eventually it got to a place of completion. It was ready to go. It was done. And one day when Jesus returns and consummates his kingdom, we will be completed. We will be perfected. And we will experience in the fullest measure what it means to be saved, what it means to know him and love him. All right, that was exciting. I think that VBS looked a little costal to me. What y'all think? Hmm. Dancing around, I like that. I think that's good. I think we're getting all the kids all situated and where they're supposed to be. So uh, <clears throat> you didn't get to see that bumper video, but that's fine, it didn't matter anyway. So those are kind of ways for us to get the stage clear. All right. Get us thinking about our message today. Here's what I want you to do with me for a second. I want you to think of your favorite ending or conclusion to a favorite book or a favorite movie, all right? So just think of it for a second. Favorite conclusion, favorite ending, favorite last scene, favorite last line. And uh, when you think of it, you'll kind of realize, wow, conclusions are important, okay? So just to kind of get us thinking a little bit here, I I brought some with me. Here, let's think about books. Uh, Famous last lines of books. Gone with the wind has a famous line in it. It's not the one that you're thinking of. You can't say that in church. But, uh, and thanks for laughing. I said that at 9.45, it was crickets. But then I realized, I don't think at 9.45, they even know what gone with the wind is. Uh, Here's the last line of the book, Gone with the Wind. After all, tomorrow is another day. How about the book, The Wizard of Oz? And O and M, I am so glad to be at home again. Uh, Tale of Two Cities, more known for its first line, right? Remember famous first line? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh, But Dickens nails the last line. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And you read those last lines and go, wow, that, that, that's a good summary you know, of, of, of all the story of what had happened. Uh, how about movies? You ever seen the movie Citizen Kane? If you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it for you. So plug your ears if you want. Remember the, the movie Citizen Kane, uh, uh, based on the billionaire publisher William Randolph Hearst guy has everything in the world he's a billionaire he's bought everything but it never really brings him satisfaction he gets to the end of his life on his deathbed and he whispers one word rosebud there's been two hours of the movie trying to figure out what did he mean by rosebud and they investigate and they never can find it Closing scene of the movie, they're throwing all of his possessions into the fire, which is kind of a a metaphor of the whole thing. They're throwing his possessions into the fire. The camera closes in, closes in, closes in, and then they throw his childhood sled into the fire, and the name of the sled is Rosebud. And the whole point of the story, the movie, is, is those simple things in life that bring you pleasure more than all the things you can buy. Uh, the old, I did this for our 830 crowd mostly. The old country movie Shane from the 50s. Remember that last line, the boy, Shane, come back, Shane. Y'all haven't seen it. Uh, <clears throat> but I said that's for the senior adults at 830. They all went, oh, yeah, I remember that. How about the last scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark? How about that? Right, when they put the the ark in the box and they put the put the box in the warehouse with all the countless other boxes that look just like it. How about the movie Inception? Is that wedding ring when he spins it? Is it going to keep spinning or is it going to topple over? Right, you're watching, you're watching. So conclusions are big, and that's what we're going to study today in our text. So we take our Bibles, we turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Today we're going to study verses 11 to 18 as we've been doing this uh, year-long study of this book of Hebrews. And what we're going to read in verses 11 to 18 of chapter 10 is actually the conclusion to a very, very deep, kind of the core, central, theological part of the whole book of Hebrews. And uh, if you remember with me, it goes all the way back to chapter 7. Chapter 7 is kind of the beginning of the really, really deep theology, uh, this kind of Uh, argument that he's made about the superiority of Jesus. So remember, the whole overarching thing about Hebrews is he's trying to tell them, hey, I know it's hard following Jesus, you're being persecuted, but you want to follow Jesus regardless of the cost because no one is greater than him. No one can save you, no one can transform you, only Jesus can do this. So you don't want to go back to the old way. For them, it was Judaism, that's what would have been easy. But they want to go back to Judaism because that cannot save them, only Jesus can so let's rewind to chapter 7. Chapter 7, he comes out and says, let's look at the Old Testament. Y'all want to go back to Judaism? Okay, let's look at the Old Testament. Look at all those priests in the Old Testament. Uh, Aaron was the first priest here, and then all of the people after him, and uh, they were the priests, not because they were qualified, but because they were related by blood to Aaron and here. Uh, Jesus comes and is a different kind of priest. He's, he's in the line of a guy named Melchizedek, who was also a priest and a king. And he was greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron. Jesus is greater than all the priests in the Old Testament. That's chapter 7. Here comes chapter 8. That old covenant that Moses gave to the people, and Jesus is greater than that. Chapter 9, all those animals that they're killing in the Old Testament, and their blood was just temporarily putting God's wrath off, and it wasn't the solution to sin. Jesus's blood is infinitely greater than the animal blood because his blood is perfect that carries over into 10 and so now we come to verse 11 and we're going to read this and what we're going to see is the conclusion to that theological part and as we read this if you've been here and listened to these messages and read these texts a lot of this is going to sound familiar Uh, the words, the phrases, the vocabulary, because he's already said all these things. And you can see it's a good conclusion. So let's read chapter 10, beginning with verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, verse 17 then he adds i will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin you don't need any offering. you don't need jesus to come and die again because his death was perfect now let's look let's review the conclusion here right All of this. The priest always offering sacrifices, but Jesus comes and one time offers his life, and then he goes and sits down because he is finished now the sacrificial. We don't need any more sacrifices because the sacrifice is perfect. So he sits down, and God has written this new covenant on our hearts and our minds, not on stone uh, tablets like in the Old Testament. All of these things that we've just read, we've already seen all of this. And so it really is a good review. Now, I, just as in terms a way of conclusion, I, I wanted to try to give you a good visual just to kind of take with you about what he is being, he's saying here. So again, Jesus is the ultimate. He's the target. He, he, he's where all of this has been headed. Now, if you've been listening, if you've been here the last many, many Sundays, you have heard me repeat a phrase over and over, and I've said, kicked the can down the road. Every time they killed an animal in the Old Testament and sacrificed, they were kicking the can down the road. What he has said in this conclusion that we've just read, and he's already said it many times, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was never a solution for sin. The blood of an animal cannot redeem, atone for the, the, the human being's life. So the sacrifices of animals were just temporarily putting off the wrath and judgment of God, but they were never the solution. They were never the remedy for sin. And all of those animals were just leading and leading and pointing the way, kicking the can down the road until Jesus would come and be the fulfillment of all of this. And Jesus is the ultimate, he is the target, he is the goal, he is the end game, his sacrifice. And so the author is trying to point out then that Jesus' sacrifice is so much greater than all these other sacrifices because all these things were pointing to him anyway. And so to them, to the Hebrews, he is saying, so why would you want to go and give your life and attach your life to anyone or anything that's not Jesus? These things, these people, they can't save you, they can't transform you, only Jesus can. So to kind of get this kick the can down the road idea in the Old Testament and the New Covenant and everything we're talking about, let's play some cornhole, okay? Now you've probably played cornhole, I'm sure. We've got our fancy IBC Shawnee cornhole board up here, pretty cool, somebody made for us. Now I don't know about you, but every time I've ever played cornhole, it, it, it takes me a little bit of time to get going in the game, to kind of get adjusted. Right, you you, kind of have to make adjustments because it's the the boards are not always the same distance every time you play, the bags are not always the same weight. You might be outside, the wind's blowing. You could be facing the sun, not in the sun, throwing uphill, throwing downhill, whatever it is. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I first start playing cornhole, I always kind of miss, right? And then after the second round, I start getting a little bit closer. You know, and I can land a few on the board. And usually, I mean, it's not till the fourth or fifth time when I'm really getting tuned in that I can actually throw one in the hole in the target. Now, this is what you want to do in cornhole if you're not familiar. If you land a bag on the board, that's one point. But if you put a bag in the circle in the target, well, that's three points. And so you kind of get swarmed up to that. But the goal of the game is to get the bag in the target. That's what you want to do. Now, you take that very same principle, everything I just said, and you just apply it to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and Jesus and his sacrifice. So I'll play the game with you, and let's just hit the highlights, all right? So we have have some moments in the Old Testament that talk, that speak of this redemption, but it's not the redemption, it's pointing to Jesus. Here comes the first one. The first one is Adam and Eve. After they sin, what does God do? He kills some animals, sheds their blood, and provides the skin from these animals as covering for Adam and Eve. That's not the solution. Killing animals doesn't redeem the sin, but it's pointing to the one who will. Here comes the next one. How about Abraham and going to sacrifice his son Isaac? Now, he gets him up there on top of Mount Moriah. He's about to plunge that knife right into that boy, and God stays his hand and provides an animal. But the whole sacrifice, that's not the solution there. Even if he did kill Isaac, that's never going to happen anyway. But still, not perfect. Here comes another one. Moses leading the Hebrews out of Egypt. And what do they do in that first Passover. They take a lamb, an animal, they kill the animal and they take the blood of the lamb and they smear it over the doorpost so that the spirit of God, the judgment from God will pass over them. But still, just pointing the way. We get a little closer here and we got all these countless animals that get killed in the Old Testament as a sacrifice. I mean, innumerable numbers of animals. But all of these things never hit the target. You see? You see? All of these things are important, but they're just pointing to Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, what does he do? Jesus is the target. And so the the point, the conclusion, this whole theological section, in fact, this whole whole book is making this point. Uh, Don't settle for things that aren't the target. These things, for them it was a religious system, these things, they can't save you change you, redeem you. Only Jesus can do this. Now, we look at it in this context of, look what he said here in these first few verses. You know, these priests, they're standing all the time. They're always working. Uh, Think of it like this, okay? First of all, the logic behind this. Hey, if if I had the ability to throw the beanbag into the target every time, then I'm going to do it. I mean, why in the world, why in the world, if I could throw in the bag and if I could throw the bag and why in the world would I do this? That doesn't make any sense. So here is Jesus, the only one that can redeem you and transform you and give you eternal life. It's not even logical that you would want to follow anyone or anything that cannot change you or save you. And then, in this context of the sacrificial system, here's another layer to this. Why would you spend all of the time and effort and blood, sweat, and tears in your life to attach yourself to something that cannot save you, change you, transform you? By the way, think about it. To sacrifice animals in the Old Testament, that was a big job. I mean, first of all, you had to go find an animal that didn't have any blemish on it. And then the priest had to consecrate himself and wash and do all, put on the vestment and do all that thing. And then you had to, you had to, you had to uh, 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 make holy all the vessels and do all that kind of thing, consecrate them. And then you had to kill the animal and clean it up and do all that. It's, it's a lot of work to kill these animals. And so the point here is, why would you want to spend all that work? Why would you want to do all of that for something that's really just throwing your life away? You step on my back porch, and not 100 feet from my back porch is our barn. It's right there. It's a nice-looking barn. And since you can see it from the house, I spend the time and energy every now and then to kind of clean that side of the barn. You know, it gets cobwebs on it and mud on it and all that kind of thing. Take the broom and rags and try to clean it up a little bit. You know what one part of the barn I've never touched? The back side of the barn. Do you know why? Because the only people that see the backside of the barn are the two possums that hang out there in a tree. And it doesn't make any sense. There's, There's no logic. Why would I go out and get all hot and sweaty and spend all that time and effort to clean the backside of the barn for nothing? No one can see it. His point here is, why would you go to all this effort and work to give your life to something that can't save you? So here comes their response. They're saying to the author of Hebrews, yeah, Mr. Author of Hebrews, we we know what you're saying. If we give our lives to someone or something other than Jesus, it's throwing our life away. But you don't understand, author of Hebrews, that's so easy. And following Jesus is hard. By the way, if you're really, truly, genuinely following Jesus, it's going to cost you something to really genuinely follow Christ in faith and obedience, you are going to die to self, you're gonna to die to all of, all of this and sin, you're gonna to die to this. And his life becomes your life. And in this world, in this culture, and in just in general, as sinners, following Jesus and dying to self is not an easy thing. So here's what you gotta ask yourself. Do I want to follow the one that can really only one that can save and transform me, even though it would cost me something, or do I want to give my life to someone or something that's easy, but in the end it will destroy me? How are you going to answer that question? Several years ago, this this uh, this happened to our son. He's about eighth grade. Started getting sick, and he didn't look too good. And he was in band, and he he was playing the tuba, and he said, it's kind of hard to blow in the tuba. So we took him to the doctor. We took him to the doctor, I don't know, one o'clock in the afternoon. Doctor puts his stethoscope on his back. I remember all this like yesterday, and he listens and he kind of opens his eyes and looks at me and says, Zach needs a chest x-ray. So we go get chest X-ray, and uh, I mean it wasn't a couple hours later, and it was after hours, but uh, the doctor, who's who we know in our church, calls me. And he says, "Hey, is Zach with you?" And I said, "Yeah, he's right here." He says, "You need to bring him to my office immediately," and he says, "Look at this picture I'm texting you," and he texted me his X-ray. And it looked a whole, whole lot like the one you see on the screen. About two-thirds of one of Zach's lungs was full of pneumonia. And I'll never forget, the doctor said, "Uh, you can come to my office right away, or you can just go ahead and check him into the hospital. But either way, something needs to be done immediately. Now, we had a choice here with Zach. We could take him to the doctor, and what was awaiting him at the doctor was a big old shot right here in the hip. And the doctor gave it to him. It was after hours. Everybody was gone. But he's, he looked at Zach and said, I give you this shot or you can go to the hospital. Which one you want? And Zach's like, I'll take the shot. And, and it hurt. And then Zach looked at the doctor and said, your nurses give better shots than you. And I said, don't talk, don't trash talk anybody with a needle, man. I mean, life lesson. But here's what could have happened. Zach, us, whatever, How you going to look at it? We could have said, oh, you know what, Zach? You you can't breathe very good. You're kind of coughing a little bit. Why don't you just drink some NyQuil? That would be easy. No pain, no hospital stay. But what happens? You untreat, you fail to treat pneumonia like that, uh, you could be dead. So the choice is for you. You want to take the easy way? And by the way, there's a ton of easy ways. Things, people, philosophies ideologies that you can give your life to and and i'm going to argue right here with you every single one of us in this room we are giving our life to someone or something you're following you're worshiping someone or something so what do you mean preacher what i mean is this what 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 shapes what drives your worldview you know what shapes and what drives your thoughts and the way you speak, and the way you spend your time, and the way you spend your resources, and the way you treat people. And how we do all of that is driven, motivated by something. We've given our life to someone or something. So I wrote this down. Not everything in this list, by any means, is bad. In fact, some of the things in this list I'm about to read are good. But they can't save you. They can't be your Lord. So I want you to ask this question to yourself. To what or to whom are you giving your life? Now listen. There is no show on TV that you can binge watch that can save you. There is no sport you can play that can save you. There is no fish you can catch or an animal you can kill that will save you. No body of water you can ski or surf on. No mall or store you can shop in. No arms of a person you can fall into. No bottle you can put to your lips or pill you can swallow that will save or transform you. Not all of those things are bad. In fact, some of those things are good for you to do, but all of these things are terrible lords and taskmasters. They cannot change, they cannot save you. So the argument in this conclusion is let's go to Jesus who has the ultimate over all these animal sacrifices. He has sat down because it is finished, it is complete. So that's the conclusion. But also what I want you to see in this, just real quick, I'm gonna teach you this, is there's a transition here in this passage of scripture. Next Sunday, when you come next Sunday, we're we're gonna study verses 19 to 25. And that begins the practical part of the letter. In fact, some people that argue that Paul is the author of Hebrews point to this because most of the Pauline writings in the New Testament are very pretty clearly demarcated, a theological section and a practical section. You kind of finish the theological section in Hebrews towards the end of chapter 10, and then starting at the end of chapter 10, you get the hall of faith, you go to the rest of it. It's very practical. This is how you live it out. And so here's what's going on. Listen to me, okay? You cannot reduce Christianity to merely a set of beliefs. You cannot reduce Christianity to just a truckload of facts. No, the truth that is given to us in the scripture is propositional truth. It means it is given to us to live. You cannot read the theology of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. You cannot read the depths of what Jesus has done for you. Read that and then just walk away unchanged. That's not Christianity. You can't do that. And remember, I've I've used this illustration before, I, I just, I always keep using it. The Bible has, it's truth, it's absolute truth, it's truth. But the Bible is not just given to us to be a compendium of facts and statements of truth. You know, we read it and walk away and say, oh, that was interesting. And so the illustration I've used before, the anaconda can grow to a length of 30 feet. That is a statement of fact. But then how about this statement? There's an anaconda under your chair. Now that's a call to action. And that's the scripture, friends. The scripture isn't just describing God because, you know, hey, we're bored, we wanna. No, it is a call to respond to that truth. Now, let me just take one second and teach you this, okay? This is so fascinating. Look at verse 14. Look at this. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now do you see the word perfected? Watch this, fascinating, let me teach you this. In the book of Hebrews, that, I, that phrase, uh, perfected or made perfect, it appears nine times in the book of Hebrews. This is the seventh usage of the nine times. Now watch this, so cool. The first five times in Hebrews when it says made perfect or perfected, they all refer to Jesus. And remember, we already learned when it says that Jesus was made perfect, that doesn't mean that he had sin or he was imperfect. No, when it says made perfect, think of it like he, he accomplished, he finished the task. Made per- he was made perfect by coming and being a human and, and, and knowing through flesh and blood what it was like to be tempted and yet never sin. and he perfectly died and he perfectly rose from the dead. So the first five times referred to Jesus being made perfect, but watch, the next four in Hebrews refer to you and me being made perfect, the followers of Jesus. That's what this one is here. So you see the transition? It's, it's, it's masterful. Why in the world did Jesus leave heaven and come to earth to be made perfect in flesh and blood and give his life and rise from the dead? Why did Jesus, why was he made perfect? He, so that we could be made perfect. So the first five belonged to him the next four belonged to us he was made perfect why did he come to earth and die so we could just have christmas so that we could just have some kind of fun tradition or some statements to say no he came and did all this to change our lives and that really is, is is where this concludes so we have this transition now from all the theology in hebrews to this great calling and the great calling look at the end of verse 14 He is making us perfect to those who are being sanctified, and so we know we're not going to be perfect on this earth. One day we will be in heaven in eternity. We have to be through his blood, but there's this process right here. We are being sanctified. The idea is holy. Uh, think, think, Think of a group of items that's all in here in a general pool together and it's just kind of dirty. And you pull one of these items out from all the rest and you clean it up and, and you give it a, 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 a purpose. You give it, you've done all this for some purpose to do. Kind of a picture of us. Here we are. We're in the world of sin. We're in our own sin. When Jesus comes and he calls us out of that and he pulls us out of our sin and he cleanses us and he sets us apart not to sit on the shelf but he has set us apart to service. By the way, remember a couple of Sundays ago, Moses goes into the holy place and just starts slinging blood everywhere, right? Here's the, here's the lamp stand. Here's the table of bread. Here's the altar burning incense, and Moses goes in there, and he's slinging blood all over it. Why? He's consecrating it, but why is he consecrating it? So they can use these things. Same thing for us. God has saved us from our sin. He's called us out, pulled us out of our sin, And he is using us, he is shaping us, he is molding us, he is making us holy. And so listen to me, y'all listening? Statement I made a minute ago, you cannot reduce Christianity to just a set of beliefs. Here comes another one. You cannot remove the obedience, the action, the servanthood from Christianity either. You can't just say, hey, I'm a Christian. I said the prayer, and I got dunked in the water, and so I'm good, I'm in. And then there's zero life change. That's not Christianity. Christianity says... The basis, the means for me being right with God and being saved is nothing that I do. It is what Jesus did on my behalf on the cross. But once that foundation is laid by faith, once I am right with him by my faith and my belief in his work, now I actually do have works that aren't the cause of my salvation, but my works are the result of my salvation. You see it? And so we get that in the scripture. Look on the screen at James 2. He makes this crazy clear. Hey, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, if you say you believe in God, but there's no evidence of it in your life by your actions, you don't really have faith. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, what he says right there is you cannot separate faith and works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead here's how paul puts it in ephesians many of us who've been in church a while we we memorize Ephesians 2 8 and 9 it's by grace you've been saved through faith and that is not your own doing it's the gift of god not a result of works, so that no one may boast but many of us don't know verse 10 Right on the heels of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, this colossal statement in the Bible about justification by grace through faith, right on the heels of that, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the transition then. You got all this incredible theology this is everything that jesus has done this is how perfect this is how great this is how superior jesus is to anything or anyone else you could give your life to and so follow him regardless of the cost but friends following him means you're going to live this out in your life he was made perfect and he's making you perfect he is shaping in you And so, friends, we cannot say, hey, hey, I believe this. I believe in God. I'm all good with that. And then we don't have a changed and transformed life. That's not Christianity. And I'm not going to do this perfectly. But the Spirit of God is empowering me, and that's that's so important here. My works don't save me. In fact, I can't even really do the works on my own. What does it say here? He has written his law, verse, verse 16. He has written his law on my heart and on my mind. He is changing me. He is living his life through me. No. You ever, you ever got a new pair of shoes that you wanted to keep clean? Right? What if they were white shoes? And uh, you, you, you put some work into that okay to keep them clean you know you're about to go somewhere you think there might be mud you don't wear those shoes you wear a different pair of shoes and then when you're wearing your new white shoes uh you find you're at some place and there's kind of some mud around or whatever what are you doing you're doing everything you can right to keep those shoes clean you're working at it right in fact what i never understood this i say well just when you get to the mud just step lightly i'm like hey i'm stepping lightly but i'm still 200 none of your business okay that didn't change my weight this is us and we're, we're working at this. Now I'm not saved by my works. In fact, I can't even do these works in my own power. But as he empowers and as he enables me, I'm working to, to, to see that I am in obedience to him. And you want to see something just super cool. I don't usually do this because I think it just confuses people and it's I don't usually tell you. This is what the Greek stuff means. In fact, my Greek teacher said, when you're using Greek in a sermon, remember, Greek in a sermon should be like undergarments. It provides strong support, but should never be seen. Uh, the rest of y'all get that at lunch. Um, but friends, in the, in the Greek text right here, this is just so powerful. You, you want to you see that he's the one that saves you. He's the one that enables you and empowers you to work for him. Look on the screen. Look at the verb tenses that he uses right here. It's just, it's so incredible. Look at verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Offered and sat down, aorist tense in Greek, past tense. Here's a final action done in the past, it is final, it is the anchor point, right there, said and done. Then he uses like a present tense by using the perfect tense in verse 14. Look on the screen. By a single offering he has perfected us. The tense that he uses in Greek right there is an action that happened in the past, but it has lingering effects into the present. And then you look at verse 14 again, look on the screen. You see the phrase, those who are being sanctified? Now uses a present participle, and that's the future. And what that one means is something that's happening now that has future implications. Oh, that's why I love to study the Bible. This is masterful. Right in this little bitty section of three verses, he changes up the verb tenses to teach you this. Right, how am I saved? How can I do any of this? Because my anchor point is in the past tense. What Jesus did on my behalf at the cross and what this means is it has present-day ramifications. That means I am, to cha- I am to live a changed life. I'm putting the work into living for Christ, and he is empowering me right now on the basis of that past action. I can live for him, and as I'm living for him and as he is shaping and molding me, here comes the future tense. I will find myself in eternity one day in heaven. <sighs> Isn't that good? So my identity, my power everything it didn't come from anything within me it all finds its basis in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so great that means then my focus is him i'm not giving my life to anyone anything any ideology that's just going to lead to my ruin that can't save me or change me my focus now what am i going to do with all this theology I am putting it in my heart and mind. I am living it out, and my focus is Christ. No one else. Got the Olympics coming this Friday. I like the Olympics. I want to show you a little video, real quick little brief video, about a para-Olympian who is a sprinter, 100-yard dash, and he is blind. I want you to watch carefully how a blind person runs the 100-yard dash Listen to the words, the words are on the bottom, okay? But watch this. David Brown, the reigning world champion, goes in lane three alongside Jerome Avery, former international sprinter for the United States. I ran with him our first practice. Coach immediately said, you're gonna run with him after me. you know, the rest has been history. There you go, drive, 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 drive! Stay tight! Running with Jerome, I don't have to worry about going out too far. All I have to focus on is just listening to him. Get up! Nice! Arm action should be exact. We should be hitting the ground at the same time. This time, they're wide. The crowd gets away very, very well indeed. You see his run, we like one person. It should look like one person running. Woo, that's okay. it tracking side on camera is magic to watch because it just shows that uh, they were running almost like All right, if you can't make a spiritual application out of that I can't help you what did the guide say try 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 and what's the participant doing he says you know I don't have to worry I just focus on him I listen to him and then you love that line when you see the two of us running it ought to look like one person When someone looks at your life, yeah, we're not going to be perfect, but when someone looks at our, it should look like one person, not me, Jesus. That's Christianity. That's the gospel, and that's what we're called to. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for such a rich passage of Scripture. And I pray, Father, that we, we would understand the truth of this, that you are warning us, you are pleading with us in your Word not to give our lives to anyone or anything that isn't Jesus. Only Jesus can save and redeem. Only Jesus can transform us. And so, Lord, even if there is a great cost in following you, you are worth it because you are greater than all other things. And so I pray, Father, that we would work out our salvation, that we would grow in our discipleship and our death to sin and self to be more and more like you, that our lives would reflect your character, your word. So speak to us, Lord. I pray for anyone today that has not followed you in faith. And they still find their lives tethered, just like these two runners were were tethered at the arm. They find themselves tethered to someone or something that isn't you. Father, I pray that you would call them from that to follow you. And so, Lord, thank you for speaking to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.